Hello, and welcome to episode 38 of For Art's Sake, an art history and museum podcast. I'm your host, Rhea. So today's episode is part two of my 12 LGBTQ artworks, which is basically artworks by LGBTQ people for the most part. Um, there is some debate there, of course, um, with some older people, if you will. Um, but the artworks themselves are LGBTQ in some way. Um, so this is part two, like I said. So part one I posted last week and I did this as part of Pride Month, which I know technically it is July when I'm recording this and when I'm posting this, but Pride is all year round. And um, I needed to do it anyway since I started the month with the Hard Rock Live. So forgive me. Um, but yeah, today we're just going to be talking about six artists and I'm pretty excited. Um, if you hear any background noise, it's my fan running and... Um, if I sound a little sick or anything, I just have a stomach ache. It's just my medication. So we're going to get through this. I'm also a little bit sleepy. I just got off work and it's almost midnight. So yeah, uh, let's get started. The first artist that I'm going to be discussing, well, artwork I'm going to be discussing is by uh, Layla, or Layla rather, Babiere. Um, she is a Ugandan abstract sculpture sculptor. Not she's not a sculpture herself. She is a sculptor, um, and she uses uh, common everyday materials, which includes plastics, uh, rubber, nails, wood. Which, by the way, she carves by a chainsaw, which is so cool. And there's some photos of her out there that are just really neat. Uh, she also uses a variety of found objects and ceramics. Um, the LGBTQ community and rights um, are a central part of her work. It is very purposeful. Um, many of her pieces are specifically about LGBT, LGBTQ people in Uganda. I would say actually for the most part they are. Um, and the LGBTQ people there facing persecution and discrimination, both from their government, um, from religion, and more on an individual, like, person-to-person -person basis. Of course, these works can also apply to LGBTQ people in many other countries, but it's very, very important that we emphasize um, Uganda and Ugandan people in this. Um, her figural, figural works uh, specifically, typically, build on classic uh, Ugandan art and aesthetic. Um, of course, this isn't, you know, all of this isn't to say that her work is primarily um, sad or tragic, but rather her sculptures are celebrations of LGBTQ people based on real people or a collective amalgam, you know, symbolizing LGBTQ people and just showing that they're normal people um, that love each other and deserve life and just kind of taking existing art and making it queer. So, um, there's a really great article by wallpaper.com all about her life. Um, she currently lives in New York. And when she um, immigrated here, I guess we can call it that, she did, uh, she did apply to several different countries for artist residencies. Um, and she was so, which is really unfortunate. Um, is that in 2015, she was publicly outed as a lesbian. Um, and she used applying to artist residencies as a way to um, get out of an unsafe, um, tricky situation. Um, her life in Uganda, um, it just wasn't going to be good. So she had to get out of there simple as that, unfortunately. So she applied to the US, the UK, and Sweden, um, and the United States it was approved. Uh, she participated in the 2015 Fire Island Artist Res Residency, which is specifically for supporting LGBTQ um, artists and poets. Um, then she stayed in New York, um, and she found um, community there. She got support from several different um, organizations, including the New York City Anti-Violence Project and the African Human Rights Coalition. Um, they, they both uh, specialize in um, LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers specifically. Um, in 2018, after three years of being in the United States, she was granted asylum. So um, if you want to read more about 
that whole process and as well as a process of her kind of like finding her footing in regards to her art which she did start studying when she lived in uganda um i highly advise reading this article because it's very interesting and important and it really um is important to kind of know these artists stories especially if we're going to be looking at their artwork and trying to understand it better so um the like this two-part episode series thing i'm only focusing on one artwork in particular um so it was kind of hard to choose which artwork i was going to talk about for this artist um i should also say that uh she goes <laughs> i think her artist name is interesting um she switches it so it's barbary lila um i'm not sure why but it's like it's her name but just switch so i think that's kind of cool maybe it's kind of like how we um sometimes how we label artwork sometimes we do that or when we reference people by their last name um i'm not actually sure i think that's really interesting but yeah so let's actually talk about the artwork the artwork that i decided to focus on today and by the way it was quite hard to figure out just one to talk about but it is an outdoor sculpture um, that I think kind of encompasses um, what I think really, I don't, I don't want to say symbolizes artists, but like her, her approach to art, like it, it encompasses a lot um, of like the details, I, I think that make her identifiable as an artist. Okay, I think that makes sense. So this work is called Tuli Mekwano, or we are in love and this is the first edition of that so it's referred to as we are in love number one um the title is swahili and basically translates to we are in love um let me describe it so the main part of this sculpture is made out of wood um it's a pine tree that she carved with a chainsaw and there are two figures one um has a darker complexion one has a lighter complexion and they are both wearing um headwear and i believe jewelry at least on one and the other components of the sculpture um are found objects so on the left hand side um face of you know facing this figure's face right so left hand side of this figure the lighter one has this beautiful towering hat that consists of soda cans so there's a silver part you know like kind of like the inside of the cans and then the outside of the cans which are identifiable there's coca-cola there's sprite there's diet sprite there's pepsi uh, i think canada dry and maybe a fanta orange um they're bright and colorful and you can definitely see that even though these are identifiable brands, um, if you just look at it as the abstraction of color, it should simply looks like a fabric. Um, the other figure, um, I'm not sure what the gold piece is. I don't see a detail on that. But there's like a gold piece in the middle and then it's surrounded by kind of like this um, wire uh, structure and it is decorated heavily with the bottoms and tops of different types of cans of different sizes. So I definitely see uh, soda cans and I think kind of like soup cans. Um, and while yes, you can tell that these are cans um, and they're also used kind of uh, as I believe these are earrings because of where they're located in regards to the face, even though the figures are you know abstracted and large in size but they definitely look like dangling earrings they act kind of like these beautiful kind of sequins um and i know that with what i find very cool so this exists uh, existed outside at the socrates sculpture park i'm not sure if it's still up because it was a part of a show called the socrates annual and this was held in 2018 but it would have been really cool can you imagine like the sound that the cans the little um tops and bottoms of the cans would have made when the wind blows especially if the earrings would be so delicate and pretty like that tinkling and i just like love that it's not a kinetic um sculpture but it has elements of that and of course light and how light would reflect um on these parts of the cans and i just think it's like 
taking these everyday objects, recognizable objects and very accessible objects, and then transforming them into something that we can both identify and also see the abstraction. Um, it's just, uh, I love it. So the figures, um, the heads, we have primarily the heads and then they're kind of like on these kind of linky kind of stick-like bodies. We don't really have arms or legs or anything like that. It's primarily like a mask or headwear. Um, it appears that their eyes are closed um, that's what it looks like to me. And I think their eyes are closed in a way that's like, you're just, ah, bliss, love, right? The lighter face is kind of taking over half the darker face. And it kind of looks like they're just close together and maybe sitting together, whatever. And what's really great about this is that you can't tell the gender of the figures. You can't tell by their face. You can't tell by... Um, Oh, I just noticed on the lighter one, um, on the left-hand side, there's like a piece of iron. And I'm not sure what shape that is, but um, where was I? Oh, you can't tell by the different elements, the aesthetics, what they're wearing, what gender they are. It's just two people in love. And this is really just, you know, showing that two people can just kind of exist together. Um, just a way to kind of highlight LGBTQ people um, and how they're persecuted for nothing. <laughs> you know, they're, they just exist and they love. Um, and I just, I think this is just a beautiful sculpture. I, I wish I could have seen this in, and I, I can't wait to see her work in real life because it's so incredible and this in particular has the element of outside is why I chose it because I was just thinking about how it interacts you know or how the environment interacts with it rather and also I think it's really cool to have like a wood sculpture made from a pine tree and then be in like a wooded park um it's bright and it's colorful and it stands out and I'm just I'm in love with it <laughs> All right, now I'm going to be going um, back in time now. We're going to be talking about the painting Sappho and Arena in a Garden at Mitalini. Mitalini, forgive me. Um, this was painted by um, Simon Solomon in 1864. Um, this painting is very beautiful, and I think you can tell by the title if you know anything about queerness and specifically lesbians, then you know exactly why I chose to talk about this painting. So it is a watercolor and it's on paper, so it has this really like beautiful, kind of fuzzy, almost like pastel, like that kind of dusty kind of look that pastels can get sometimes. Like it's really nice quality to it. Watercolors are very beautiful, but very hard to keep and like exhibit um but basically this painting depicts sappho um and she's embracing arena um another poet and they're sitting in a garden on the island of lesbos so if you don't know anything about sappho um she was born on the island of lesbos as in lesbians um and she's a poet who is super, super gay. Another um, descriptor that lesbians or other women who love women might use is sapphic. It comes from that. Um, so Solomon painted this scene. Um, though we know about Sappho, we don't know that uh, if um, Irina lived on this island, um, she lived possibly on a different island, so it is like this, you know, created kind of scene, but whatever. Um, it's just really lovely painting, so let me describe it here. So the two are sitting in the middle of a garden, they're sitting on this um, marble bench. Uh, I'm not sure whom is whom, but we have, um, I believe it's Sapphos on the left, or... Well, anyway, we have two women in an embrace. Um, their dresses are long and just lots and lots of fabric kind of covering up their bodies, but the way that the fabric lays kind of like alludes to legs, right? Um, and one woman in particular, her dress is kind of going down her shoulder, kind of exposing the top of her breast. And the other figure is just holding her one, one hand, though you can't see it because the other 
um, woman's hand is covering her hand, but it's definitely under the other shoulder of her dress. And her other arm is wrapped around her. And she's not kissing her on the lips, but very close. It, and the woman in the pink dress stares out at us while the woman in the yellow dress who is kissing her um, is not looking at us. She's busy. She's kissing. There's also a deer and some birds and roses and I think some sort of instrument. And, you know, there's um, some paper, well, you know, a scroll, you know, alluding to their poetry. And they're really just, um, you know, hanging out being gal pals, if you will. Um, <laughs> this uh, watercolor has the aesthetic elements of what is called the pre-Raphaelites, which is so hard to say. I've always struggled with that. But basically, Raphael, um, they believe that art prior to Raphael is better art. Um, this kind of aesthetic has quite a lot of gorgeous women long hair. I, I have a lot of redheads. Um, I, when I look at this work, I don't see, um, like a typical pre-Raphaelite work, but I definitely see elements of it. Um, and he was pretty close to folks there. So let's talk about the artist and why he may have painted this in particular. Um, well, one, he enjoyed Sappho's poetry and, um, by discovering um, the poetry there and having friends um, who are pre-Raphaelites who are also interested in Sappho's poetry, um, basically he discovered his sexuality. Um, uh, you know, in the late 1800s, even in certain communities and stuff, it was quite difficult, of course, as you can imagine, to be gay. Um, and as an artist making art, it can be a struggle to be true, um, especially as art, you know, moves away from what you have to paint, though it is still, you know, kind of holding on there. But a lot of artists wanted to paint different subject matter or they wanted to bring their own truth and their own experiences and their own lives into their artwork. Um, so it was really difficult <laughs> at the time for queer artists, as you can imagine. Um, Solomon was arrested um, a couple times for sodomy, which is basically being gay and having gay sex. Um, he was arrested in 1873 and 1874, and he was also convicted. And um, being an artist, being a part of communities, like I said, it it was not easy. And um, unfortunately for him, when he painted, his queerness was definitely a part of his artwork, which had difficulties with the pre-Raphaelites as well as the community at large, um, art community, and those who enjoyed art. Um, so a lot of his artwork actually um, is homoerotic or just straight up gay. Um, what I find really cool is that he utilized existing narratives, like and classicism, for example, which is more of an appropriate subject matter for an artist, especially at this time. Um, he utilized that to kind of explore his sexuality, to explore his desires, but not, not always as himself, not always as men. And using this painting in particular, you know, he was definitely exploring and showing queer love through lesbians. Um, I hope that makes sense. I would just notice there's little doves. Uh, I think those are doves. Um, I don't know. It just kind of makes me sad, but this is a really beautiful painting and I know a lot of people appreciate this and I'll appreciate a lot of um, pre-Raphaelite styles because there often are these elements of women um, who um, allude to lesbianism or kind of like kind of straight up right um it's just 
it's a really beautiful painting that I think is more appreciated now um, when it existed. Um, it's also important to note that even though I'm focusing on this one painting, he has quite a variety of work um, and it deals with him being gay and his desires and you know working through other people other figures other narratives um, he also depicts a lot of uh, Jewish life just normal Jewish life everyday life um, which is of course there's anti-semitism in every sphere institution community so a lot of people also didn't like him for that um but yeah if you're interested in an artist who's a gay man um a gay british man um i highly suggest that you check out solomon and check out his beautiful paintings he was incredibly talented such a beautiful work now i have yet to talk about on this podcast um digital artists artists um you know that not they haven't necessarily been in a lot of museums or galleries of course galleries um it's a lot larger than you know like your new york galleries you know stuff like that where things are like super expensive you can have smaller galleries right um there's no wrong way to be an artist it's just um for the most part on this podcast i have talked about people who are in museums who are written about by art magazines and newspapers and blogs websites, what have you, um, who do have a place um, within the discussion of art history and museum history. Um, you know, they might be talked about in a classroom and stuff like that. They have like this presence. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other artists out there who, you know, maybe they just sell their artwork. Um, you know, they do a Patreon or they sell on Etsy or whatever. Um, that's not a wrong way to be an artist. That is perfectly, you know, valid. You're still an artist. You're not any less talented. It's just slightly different, right? So one day I'm going to discuss that and discuss more digital artists um, in the future. I definitely need to do that because it's important. This is an art history podcast. And yes, actually digital art and the more accessibility of art to a, a wider audience um, to middle and lower class people is actually really, really important to the entire scope of art history. Anyway, the artist that I'm going to be discussing right now, um, and one particular artwork is Felix Dion. Um, they have an Etsy, which is F-E-L-I-X-D-E-O-N. Um, and basically, uh, he creates super gay art. <laughs> um, I am just obsessed with his style. So for the most part, he uses kind of um, a Victorian style as in like the advertisements and the comics at the time. But of course, he brings them to a more contemporary uh, setting and that um, the gender lines are blurred, the sexuality, like really cool stuff. Um, and then also, um, some of his work is very, very explicit. Um, he kind of just utilizes different kind of bright styles and like because he draws for the most part and like uh in our history art that is primarily drawn advertisements and comic books um and political comics and stuff um they just have this kind of bright cartoony lovely style of course there's different ways to portray that and he takes those styles primarily these retro or vintage styles where being queer uh, it was not good um, and bringing those styles to the future, making them accessible and making them, you know, about gay people, lesbian couples, trans people just is frankly pretty radical. If you really think about it, just kind of like taking these styles, especially the way that um, a lot of people, society, museums, academic, um, just people's kind of racist sexist styles preferences um they kind of take older styles and aesthetics for example victorian stuff and they're like putting it on a pedestal because really while they may enjoy the aesthetics there is the whole element of control and power that they you know want to keep from those time periods like when people are like super obsessed with the 1950s and 1960s um they may be obsessed with some of the aesthetics at the time um but 
the troublesome stuff, you know, it's kind of like a red flag that they're like, actually like, oh, the good old days, you know, Jim Crow, because they low key or high key um, are into that. But anyway, <clears throat> that's what I'm just gonna say, like this approach with that style is just really, really cool. Um, and the style makes it a little bit more um, accessible to a wider range um, of people who find this style. Like a lot of people like this style, right? Like I said, and they just want to see more of themselves in the aesthetics, but removed from the bad stuff, right? Where they would not be able to exist openly. Okay, so the individual artwork that I am going to be discussing is available on his Etsy for sale right now. Right now it's on sale for $51 even. It's called La Murete. See, I practice saying it. It's like, it's, it's, my tongue just twists up. John, can you help me sound it out again? Murete. Individually. Murete. It's literally difficult for me to say. Muerte? Muerte? Muerte. I don't, I don't know. It just, my mouth can't. Muerte. I think I got it. Okay. I'm so sorry. And I'm going to keep this in just for transparency. But, um, just my mouth. Like, if you could see my mouth, it's like, what? <laughs> John's laughing at me. Anyway, um, the title of it, Death Gay... Uh, Latinx drawing queer grim reaper art mail nude pin up Felix Dion poster. So basically it's in the style of a um, fortune telling card or a tarot card. Um, kind of like that kind of style. Um, and it features a naked man being embraced by death but it's very very sexual and death is not Nikki. Um, but it is a grim reaper has a scythe and everything. Scythe? It's scythe right? Okay. Oh, God. I'm losing my marbles. Um, and what's really gorgeous about this artwork is, like, the feet. Um, just the way that one foot is kind of, like, up. Um, the heel is up. It's just a really pretty element. Um, and it is definitely in a pinup style. And it's just a really gorgeous, simply... It's just, like, a simple queer artwork. Like, I don't know. I just, I really, really like it. I think maybe it's the death that appeals to me because it's like kind of like a Halloween-y kind of thing. But um, I don't know. It's just absolutely gorgeous. And I would have this with, within my house. So again, if you would like to buy it, it's $51 right now. But I definitely think that his artwork in general, um, he has, you know, a Twitter, an Instagram, a Pinterest. Um, and in the Pinterest, you can definitely see um, his influences and stuff, um, as well as his artwork. And he kind of organizes it but he shows a variety of different types of people um queer people so you have like native queer people i just got cut off something happened with anchor but yeah native queer people mexican queer people um which i guess is kind of redundant um actually yeah it is redundant um folks in 1950s and 1940s, um, people, uh, Caribbean people who are queer, you know, there's quite a lot of inspiration and you can definitely see that reflected within his work and just the style is really gorgeous. And I think also would make really good tattoos, but yeah, if you're interested in uh, digital artists that you have, um, you can like literally buy artwork from, I highly suggest just checking him out. All right, so now I'm going to be discussing one of my favorite artworks personally, um, but it's quite sad in my personal opinion. Um, and in, in some way, it's like there's a happy sadness, I guess. Um, but I do want to give a content warning for this one that I'm going to be talking about death and death specifically from complications from AIDS. I'm going to be talking about Keith Haring's um, Life of Christ altarpiece. And there's actually several of them. Um, but this one in particular that I'm going to be discussing is still currently on view at the Cathedral St. John the Divine, um, which is, um, is the same cathedral that his memorial service was held in after he died. Um, yeah, so this series of work that he created, um, 
it's multiple altar pieces that he created and called the life of Christ. Um, these were the last works that he created before he died. Sorry, I'm sad. Um, so there are nine altar pieces and there are these triptychs and triptych is, you know, using the TRI tri. Um, there's three pieces. So you have a large middle and then you kind of have these wings and it is very typical of religious art, um, Christian art in particular to do this because um, they were easier to kind of um, last and display in a church um, and also to tell a narrative. Um, and you can have more than just the three, but three is very, very common. Um, you see this a lot with Renaissance art um, and medieval art um, quite a lot. And in different styles and different narratives um, will be displayed. Um, um, all nine of these are cast in bronze and then they, they're covered in white gold. But when they were first created in the first process, um, herring use a loop knife um, on clay to draw out the different shapes. Um, you know, his very identifiable little abstracted little figures, right? Um, and loop knife, knife is kind of just a very common clay um, tool, ceramic tool, and just a little metal loop typically. Um, Keith Haring, with a lot of his work, was just very, very quick, not stopping, not necessarily planning things out when he did designs. Um, and this definitely is true for these um, these altar pieces in particular. Um, a close friend of his um, described him, um, the images came directly from his head. He never stopped to rethink the line. He never edited himself and never made corrections. Um, the different altarpieces that are in different areas, um, there's one in Paris and a church there. Um, and of course in this cathedral in New York and then in some museums. Um, I think there's only two permanently and they're both in churches. Sorry, it just really makes me sad. I just need a second. So if you know anything about Herring's work, um, the topic of religion is uh, not common, um, especially when I think about some of his work, um, you know, graffiti, sex, penises, um, bright colors, and also vodka. Um, this definitely stands out. Um, the first time that I read about this and saw it, I was just stunned. Of course, it has elements of his typical identifiable artwork. Like I said, the figures and the way that they're laced together and there's just this abstraction of shape, but then you can also see it. Um, but he, uh, he made these a month before he died. So you can definitely see what he was thinking about. The top of the triptychs on either side and in the middle are adorned with um, these uh, divine figures. So on the two sides, you have angels um, flying around. They have wings and there's lines surrounding them. And then the middle there's this figure that has multiple arms and legs. There's a heart in the center and then there's a head with a cross on it, which the cross is also the very top of the piece. Um, and then they also carry a baby. And underneath these figures is just this mass of other figures doing, I don't know, dancing, putting their arms up and in fear and joy. Um, there's quite a lot of lines and shapes that look like raindrops and sun um, and excitement. So there's a lot of interpretation that you can take from this. Um, I, different interpretations I have read. There's anger, um, which I can definitely see, like the crowds are upset, you know, if 
God is running everything, then why is this happening? Um, I know that other people see joy and happiness, but I see a lot of confusion. Um, And I do see anger and I do see sadness. I think I see all of it. Um, I don't really have anything else to say. I think that this is one of the more important, um, most important rather, artwork, um, modern or contemporary. Um, it was painted and er, created in 1990, so it's more of a contemporary artwork, postmodern. Um, it's whatever you want to describe it as, I guess. I think it's one of the most important artworks ever created. Um, it also weighs 600 pounds. And um, I, I just don't have anything more to say. Just I thought when I when I put this on my list that I was going to be able to say a little bit more. Um, but it just... It's a very beautiful artwork. Yeah, it just shines. And it's perfect to be in a cathedral. But it just makes me very sad because I just can't imagine creating this and knowing not only are you going to die, but so many people have died and something could have been done. Even just empathy and kindness, you know. So there's a lot there. There's a lot of feeling there. Um, an emotion. So yeah, I see the anger and I see fear and I see particularly in the very like cryptid alien like figure that is supposed to be Christ. I'm pretty sure. Um, I see a lot of like critique and confusion and what's going to happen, you know? Oh my goodness. Okay. Uh, let's end this one. Um, yeah, if you'd like to see it, photos of it, I suggest Googling it, or you can see it in the cathedral. Actually, this cathedral, again, was where his memorial um, took place, so it's very, very, very fitting. Um, but they um, have always embraced art, non-religious and religious art, and um, they've had a lot of contemporary art um, exhibits. All right, moving on from that little breakdown, I'm going to be talking about Zanelli Maholi. Um, and I'm actually going to be talking about a series at large. And I'm focusing on one f- photograph from that series, which is kind of what, what I've already been doing. But um, anyway, um, so technically, uh, Maholi is a photographer um, who's also done um, video and installation work. But Maholi specifically identifies as a visual activist and they have um, talked about this in a lot of interviews and when they are introduced they prefer to be introduced as a visual activist because they believe and I think they're very right obviously um, that this artistic approach um, is a really great way to highlight issues and also to just show people um, again, being like normal and living their life, um, but existing, um, with different oppressing factors and being oppressed rather. And why does it sound like that was a personal thing, but like, you know, being, um, like one thing that they talked about was, um, that their mother was a domestic worker and that they wanted to show a portrait of their mother and representing her life. Um, both as an individual and being their mother, but also with the classism and the racism and the sexism and specifically massage noir that they would have experienced. So they approach their artwork as literally a visual medium that is meant to have an activist um, approach and purpose. So I just want to get that out of the way. Um, But yeah, so they are from South Africa. Um, They are a South African artist that deals with um, a lot of what happens and has been happening um, in South Africa. Um, 
but also they have represented other communities like in the United States. But again, um, focusing on the communities there. So they've been um, for 20 years doing this, um, primarily photographs, um, and they explore race, gender, and sexuality within their work, um, either individual topics or kind of like the intersecting, right? Um, so they show a lot of South African people who have either immigrated or currently live there and what they have dealt with in South Africa or outside of it or the two of them. I mean, I kind of am just saying everything, right? Um, and just really, really stunning photographs, black and white primarily. Um, just really, really beautiful. And then I think this, the use of this intense beauty, just these perfect black and white photographs is a really great way to make somebody and make myself, you know, think about the deeper meaning and the person as an individual. It's a great way to, you know, a great thing about photography in particular. So um, the series that I'm focusing on is called Faces and Phases. Um, it is a photograph, a portrait series that's been going on since 2006, and it's still going on today. So the series of work um, that I'm going to be discussing is called Faces and Phases, and it is an ongoing series um, that has been going on since 2006. And the reason why it's been going on since, you know, it started in 2006 is because South Africa legalized same-gender marriage at this time. Um, and they wanted to put a focus on gay women in particular, queer women, um, because of the heightened violence and discrimination against them. Um, Maholi wanted to show lesbians being themselves, being bold, being in love. Um, there is a common aesthetic that runs through each portrait, though there are, you know, different things. But um, for the most part, they are of a lesbian or lesbians um, in front of a plain background or a pattern background. So not necessarily, um, you know, like a cityscape or anything like that or in within nature. Um, and there's around 300 portraits now. Um, and I wonder what, how COVID had an effect on their work. Um, but yeah, so they're just, so I know that I, you know, have to focus on one artwork in particular, but of course this series has these common elements throughout. Um, so of course I'm going to focus on one, but I guess I really should talk about them all, if that makes sense. Yeah. So for the most part, their work is black and white, um, often has that very, very deep contrast, very gorgeous black and white photography. Um, and the figures are typically, we see um, basically their chest or maybe their waist uh, up. So basically their shirt and their, of course their face. And um, everybody kind of looks at the photographer, looks at the lens, looks at us, out at us, um, which is very powerful when you have that kind of directness with the audience, the viewer, the visitor at the museum or gallery. Um, it's very confrontational. Um, and that's part of that activism element. Um, I saw a way that this was described, and this was in Aperture.org on this interview, um, where they described the work as both a mourning and celebration. And I think that's a really perfect way to describe that because the fact that this had to be done, the fact that this needs to still happen is, of course, mourning mourning those who have faced violence, who have lost their lives, um, who the people who can't be photographed in this way um, in any of their work, um, not just the series in particular, which I am going to talk about because um, there's a very, very cool element, uh, just transparency in regards to this, this series. But um, the celebration also is celebrating, you know, 
different lesbians, different black lesbians, their style, who they are, what they look like, um, how they choose to present themselves. So again, I had to focus on one photograph in particular. Um, so the photograph that I chose um, was taken in 2010 and it's of Tumi um, Nicopane, but Nicopenny. Um, and this was taken in Johannesburg. Um, I chose this photograph because I really liked the background. I thought it was really interesting. The background, I'm not sure exactly what it is, kind of looks like an old wall, but there's these like wrinkles. Um, and the wrinkles kind of like go towards the center behind her head. And of course she is looking out at us. Um, she has a really awesome haircut, you know, shaved on one side and the rest is braids. Um, she is thin um, and she's kind of standing kind of sideways. We see a bit of her clavicle, her shoulder. She's wearing this top that's asymmetrical with these ruffles that it goes, cuts across um, and then kind of has this really pretty texture that I think contrasts well with the background um, just of the fabric laying across her chest. And um, I don't think she's wearing any makeup. Um, and she's not smiling or anything, but she's just looking out at us. And it's just very beautiful. The shadows that her chin and her jaw create on her neck, the highlight on her shoulder, um, the way that seems like everything is kind of collapsing in between her, like she is kind of like the center, right? The way that her hair sits around her neck, you know, and her eyes, just this very direct stare. It's not angry, it's just existing. And it's just a very, very beautiful photograph. I highly suggest checking out um, these portraits. They are stunning. And like I said, I want to, oh, um, with this project, um, so specifically every single person that sits down for a portrait by Moholy, Moholy has specifically stated, it's like been very, very transparent about this, very purposeful, like you need to have this transparency. They will only photograph somebody if they are a legal age and if they are fully out because they don't want to contribute to the thing that they are trying to fight against. Um, and they have quite a lot of different, uh, series that I highly suggest checking out, but this one I just thought was really, really, really interesting. Um, not like the rest aren't interesting, but since it's still going on and that specifically these are portraits of lesbians, of black lesbians, um, within South Africa or who, or are from South Africa. Um, and also I should, I'm pretty sure I didn't already talk about this, um, the way that these portraits are taken and the purpose behind these portraits um, is not just portraiture as we know it, but purposefully like combating the colonial way that uh, we treated black people and native people, but like that kind of like treating them in this dehumanizing scientific way, um, like everything from science, uh, scientific experiments <clears throat> to um, like diagrams of skulls and facial features and, and like, you know, body features. Um, they wanted to take back kind of like that narrative behind portraiture where it's no longer ethnographic as in to document either a... Um, <laughs> like native people dying out or um, to document the different facial features of black people to explain, you know, why they should be oppressed, you know? Um, they just wanted to change that. They wanted to show people and create these stunning portraits give this space because you know portraits in themselves are like kind of like this privilege thing especially throughout history and black people were not afforded simple portraiture um you know for the most part it's very rare to have those kind of portraits so to this is like a very deliberate 
thing. And it's really important when we talk about it. So it's more than just a beautiful photograph. There's the history there and taking that back and affording the space to Black people in general, but specifically Black lesbians who face a heightened, um, heightened violence and discrimination within their community and outside their community. Okay, so we're actually going to end the podcast on a little bit of a sad note because uh, when I organized my list, I didn't think about who I would end with. But unfortunately, that's just going to happen, I guess, when we talk about LGBTQ art. Um, And it's important to talk about. And I didn't talk about all the sad stuff. I alluded to it. Anyway, so I'm going to be talking about um, artwork from... (sighs) I'm really trying not to butcher his last name. I'm talking about artwork from David Wojnarowicz. I'm pretty sure I got that. Wojnarowicz. I'm so sorry. I'm really bad at pronouncing things. And I really trying really hard. Um, and I think that a lot of people already know this artwork. Um, I've seen it talked about so much in my classes, but that might've just been my classes. Um, but the artwork that I just have to talk about is called Untitled. A lot of his works are called Untitled. Um, sometimes it's referred to as the boy, um, whatever. It was created in 1990 to 1991. And um, basically, there's a little boy in the center. It's a photograph of him. And around him is text, like he's in a textbook, you know, how text kind of goes around that. You remember like writing a paper in Microsoft Word and putting an image like that. I'm going to read the text and it's all in black and white. (laughs) I should also give a content warning for this one because this death and dying from AIDS, the complication from AIDS. So uh, let's read this. Uh, We're going to be talking about a lot of sad stuff. One day this kid will get larger. One day this kid will come to know something that causes a cessation equivalent to the separation of earth from its axis. One day this kid will reach a point where he senses a division that isn't mathematical. One day this kid will feel something stir in his heart and throat and mouth. One day, this kid will find something in his mind and body and soul that makes him hungry. One day, this kid will do something that causes men who wear the uniforms of priests and rabbis, men who inhabit certain stone buildings, to call for his death. One day, politicians will enact legislation against this kid. One day, families will give false information to their children, and each child will pass that information down generationally to their families, and that information will be designed to make existence intolerable for this kid. One day, this kid will begin to experience all this activity in his environment, and that activity and information will compel him to commit suicide or submit to danger in hopes of being murdered or submit to silence and invisibility. Or one day this kid will talk. When he begins to talk, men who develop a fear of this kid will attempt to silence him with strangling, fists, prison, suffocation, rape, intimidation, drugging, ropes, guns, laws, menace, roving gangs, bottles, knives, religion, decapitation, and immolation by fire. Doctors will pronounce this kid's curable, this kid curable as if his brain were a virus. This kid will lose his constitutional rights against the government invasion of his privacy. This kid will be faced with electroshock, drugs, and conditioning therapies in laboratories tended by psychologists and research scientists. He will be subject to loss of home, civil rights, jobs, and all conceivable freedoms. All this will begin to happen in one or two years when he discovers he desires to place his naked body on the naked body of another boy. And then he signs his name at the end. This is a photograph of him as a child. He's wearing a cute little patterned shirt and then suspenders. And we it's a school photo, so we see chest up and his head. Uh, This work was created, like I said, in the 1990s, following um, AIDS epidemic and continued debate over how it should have been handled. Um, The specific uh, way that this artwork was made is a photostat, which he has uh, used quite a lot. Um, 
it's a way to print a poster. Um, and it's really cheap, so you can um, make a lot of posters and, you know, to put out there. And it was um, specifically a way to make posters uh, for protests. It's very common, especially um, when you discuss, um, like we talked about ACT UP in the first part of this, or last episode, rather, um, with um, organizations, or is it organized? Well, activist groups such as ACT UP, um, where protests, um, we have posters and design was a really big thing. Um, this type of printing is very, very common. Um, so the use of it is very meaningful. Um, and it's very blatant. It's angry and sad, and it's, it's not hiding anything. Um, the first time I saw this, it like felt it in my gut type of thing um it's still like deeply upsetting and of course um we do have to consider uh whiteness in this um and also being a man um and how that resonates today and um this is a very personal piece um but I think it's important to note that this kind of violence, of course, gets worse when you add in instances of race and um, gender. You know, the violence is still incredibly high for trans women, especially trans women of color. And of course, when he created this, he wasn't considering that and he was considering a very personal thing. But I just thought that I should make note of that so and of course this lives in a uh, historical context of the time um and following the aids epidemic um my cat's coughing behind me i'm sorry hello baby are you all right no okay no not to be a bummer but toby has lung cancer he's a very sweet boy oh baby you want to be on the podcast? You want to yell? But yeah, so I think it is important to talk about that because um, that's just simply the reality. So, but this work, the text itself, um, I think is vague, even though he is talking about himself and talking about this portrait, this figure, you know, sitting here, it can definitely be applied to other children other people um he's not saying me saying this kid um i'm really sorry to end the podcast on this note um uh david did pass away from complications um from aids in i believe uh 1992 yeah um because quite a lot of, um, artwork. Um, this one was just one of the first artworks that I, um, saw by him and learned about. Um, and he has quite a lot of very blatant, angry, transparent works. Um, so if you are interested in that, I, I highly suggest, um, you check it out. He's had also a lot of controversy of, um, after his death, which is something I wanted to talk about just as a singular episode about what happened with him and also Robert Maplethorpe and the, um, the homophobic censorship that they experienced after their death um, when they were being exhibited. It was especially bad with Robert Maplethorpe, but um, a similar thing happened um, because, you know, the Catholic Church was like, ah, you're hurting my feelings. So... But if you just think about this work and you think about his life and death, you know, um, how do we end this on a good, happy note? I don't know. Some things just aren't happy. I think that's some things are just, you know, there's no way to really avoid it. Let's end this. Oh, I guess if I'm ending this on a sad note, I'm not going to do an ad this time because <laughs> I'm uncomfortable with it. But yeah, that takes us to the end of this episode and an end to this kind of um, 
Pride Month uh, celebration here where I kind of have these kind of listicle, jam-packed with info type of um, episodes. Of course, I am not going to stop talking about queer people or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I hope that maybe you learned something. You maybe learned a new artist or you want to check out an artwork, something like that. Um, wow, I really like talking about art, huh? Um, have a safe 4th of July. Please don't drink and drive. Um, and also, um, I'm not Canadian. I should have probably talked about this at the beginning of the episode, but I forgot 4th of July was coming up and uh, yesterday was the 1st of July. I'm not Canadian, but United States and Canada are basically the same, except sometimes Canadians speak French and they eat, um, poutine, which is great, but whatever. Um, we're basically the same. And, um, finding the graves of like thousands of mostly children um, in Canada and also in the United States. Don't forget that residential schools also existed here. Um, yeah, so <laughs> Canada on the 4th of July, just consider um, what you might be celebrating there. But uh, yeah, don't drink and drive. Um, I don't know how to actually make a statement about this that's proper without me cussing a lot. And I don't want to um, put another explicit thing on my podcast because then uh, less people listen to it. But um, yeah, if you're not upset about that like, and you don't feel like this horrible feeling about these kind of like nationalistic patriotic holidays. Um, I don't know what to say about you. Wow. We're really ending this podcast and like not on a happy note. Um, let me think of something. Let me think of something happy that we can end this on. John, do you have anything? Anything happen? So I just, the last artist that I talked about this artwork was very, very angry. He died from complications of AIDS and made this very blatantly angry artwork. And then also then I mentioned um, Canada Day and 4th of July. And um, the issue was celebrating those at this time after um, they've dug up the graves of children. Eat a hot dog and stay angry. Eat a hot dog and stay angry. But if you're vegetarian or vegan... Oh, those grilled carrots by that woman on um, TikTok. I think about those. Oh, they're probably delicious. She should open a restaurant. I forget her name. Tabitha? I haven't seen her videos in a while because, you know, before you page is racist. Well, my God. I mean, I try. I literally would like, I had gone on her page and like gone through a bunch of her videos. So she'd be on my for you page again. And it's this is very difficult the way that the algorithm is. <sighs> anyway, can we find anything else happy to talk about? Mm-hmm. The Postal Museum is opening in August. Yeah. They just unveiled uh, or released a new stamp. It's the first um, stamp in America um, to be designed by a Native American artist. So that's cool. You're into stamps, which I am, because they're just little stickers that have a job. Um, I'm literally trying to think of something. You know, lesbians are beautiful. Trans people, trans women, trans men, non-binary people, gender fluid people, gay men, bisexuals, pansexuals, asexuals, gender, gender queer people. Everybody, I'm so happy that you exist. I love you. Not all of you. Sorry, I just thought about that one gay guy on TikTok that like screams and he like, then he goes and orders Starbucks. I hate him. Anyway, (laughs) not him. Um, But yeah, if you're listening to this and you're having a tough time, I'm just glad that you exist. And I'm proud of you. How about that for ending on a good note? That LGBTQ people in this community, yes, has some issues, but at the same time, beautiful and smart and creative and innovative 
and important and special. Let's end it on that. All right, this has been For Art's Sake, an art history and museum podcast. I probably should not have watched the Bo Burnham special before recording this because I feel like it's just seeped into my brain and I'm just like bitter and sad and angry. Please forgive me. Um, I've been your host, Rhea. Take care. Again, if you're drinking, make sure that you have a sober ride home, please. And thank you. And uh, I don't know, give money to a Native American person. How about that? All right. I'll see you. See you. Uh, You'll hear from me next week. Hopefully I won't be as angry. Though anger is fine. I just hope that I'm not so bitter and angry for just like an hour. Thank you for listening. I really do mean that. Bye. (laughs) Bye.